0: Good evening, my name is Christian List and I teach in the Departments of Philosophy and Government here at the LSE. On behalf of the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, um, the Forum for European Philosophy and the Department of Philosophy, I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's public lecture by Daniel Dennett. And so our speaker is uh, one of the world's best known philosophers and for this reason he doesn't really need an introduction. But it's conventional to make some introductory remarks, so um, let me just say a few words. Uh, Daniel Dennett is university professor and Austin B. Fletcher professor of philosophy and co-director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. He works on a breathtakingly large range of issues from consciousness, intentional agency, and free will to biological and social evolutionary processes and social scientific questions related to religion amongst many others. He is well known for an approach to philosophy that is continuous with the natural and social sciences and that embraces the scientific method. And this makes him a particularly apt guest speaker um, for the LSE because the LSE's philosophy department is is also known for its scientifically oriented tradition in philosophy, and Dan is indeed a regular here at, at the LSE. Daniel Dennett is the author of more books and scholarly articles than I can count, so I just want to mention a few highlights his first book, um, which was titled Content and Consciousness, was published uh, in 1969. It was then followed by many others, including Elbow Room in 1984 on free will, The Intentional Stance on Intentional Agency in 1987, Consciousness Explained, obviously on consciousness in 1991, Darwin's Dangerous Idea in 1995, Freedom Evolves, another um, uh, work on free will in 2003 and breaking the spell on religion in 2006. (coughs) Um, Dan is a real pop star, perhaps rock star I don't know what the metaphor is in in philosophy. His work is influential well beyond academic uh, circles. The New York Times for instance recently profiled him and described his work as philosophy (coughs) that stirs the waters and I noticed that Google registers 1.3 million web pages mentioning his name. Uh, So even in the uh, by the standards of the astronomical size of the internet. That's pretty big. So he's just published a new book um, titled Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. You see the cover um, here on display, uh, which we are launching um, today. The Guardian actually published some excerpts uh, recently. And yesterday, there was a Guardian article with a catchy title, Daniel Dennett, You Can Make Aristotle Look Like a Flaming Idiot. So let me give some context for this, though. So the context is one of Dan's recommendations for good thinking, namely to respect one's intellectual opponents. Um, He warns us in particular that it is all too easy to ridicule or misrepresent a philosophical opponent by making the opponent uh, just look like a flaming idiot um, who misses all the points. Good philosophical argumentation Uh, Dan says, requires reconstructing one's opponent's arguments in the most charitable and illuminating ways. And I'm sure that um, tonight's uh, lecture will contain a lot more material on his tools for good thinking. So the format for this lecture will be as follows. Dan will talk for about an hour. Uh, We then have about 30 minutes for Q&A. And after the lecture, there'll be an opportunity to get signed copies of the book um, outside. And for those of you using Twitter in today's age, there is even a suggested hashtag, which is hash LSE Dennett, without any spaces anywhere. Um, so now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Daniel Dennett.
1: Thanks very much. I guess I have to stay close to this, don't I? If I move away too much, then that's no good. All right. I'm going to start with a little joke. My dear friend John McCarthy, late John McCarthy, who created the term artificial intelligence, he and I were once at an artificial intel- intelligence conference. And the first speaker got up and began to talk, and somebody at the back of the room yelled, Louder! And so the speaker began talking louder. And John yelled, Funnier! (laughs) (laughs) Impeccable timing, right? Uh, Admired your man tremendously. Okay. Why do we need thinking tools? Do they actually help us think better? I think they do. They actually make us more intelligent. And this is a point which I first really appreciated Uh, In the work of my also dear departed friend, Richard Gregory, the psychologist, the Bristol psychologist, in his book, Mind and Science, he developed the idea that tools make us smarter. They don't just make us stronger or more efficient, they make us smarter. And he and I talked about that quite a bit, and I think he's exactly right. So what I'm going to talk about today are tools for thinking, and uh, these are not... uh, the big, expensive power tools of thinking, computers, and telescopes, microscopes, and the like. These are, if you like, the hand tools, or better, the brain tools for thinking, the tools that philosophers particularly need to use. And the reason we need them is nicely summed up by my student, Bo Dalbum, who once said, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. I think that's exactly right. The thinking you can do with your bare brain is the kind of thinking that chimpanzees can do and dolphins can do, and that's not much, actually. So, what I've been working on recently is how do we... Where do these tools come from, these thinking tools come from, and how do we, uh, how do we install them in our brain? And uh, I'm working, actually, on another book which will look closely at cultural evolution and that role. Uh, in this book, I'm really talking about the tools that have been recently designed deliberately, mainly by uh, philosophers and scientists, uh, and that's what I'm gonna be talking about today. How many of you know about the Flynn effect? Oh, only one or two hands, good. Well, then I can, you can at least learn one thing from me today. <laughs> You learn about the Flynn effect. James Flynn, psychologist, is the one who <clears throat> made it famous in psychology, I guess. But he didn't do the original work on it. It turns out that IQ is up substantially over the last 80 or 100 years. And this is not a function of who goes to the right schools. It seems to be pretty much worldwide... Has nothing to do with what your ethnicity is or your gender. And to give you an idea of how big a, a change it is, um, a person who measures 100 today, and the the, the tests are normalized to 100 as average. Uh, that's that's the that's the mean uh, score. Uh, a person who who gets 100 today, if you give that same person uh, IQ tests from 1930. They'd score about 130. And if you took a person who scored about 100 back then and gave them today's test, they'd get about 80, which is considered, you know, on the edge of being mentally retarded. So it's not a small effect. What explains it? Nobody knows. One thing is clear. We're much better at taking IQ tests now than we were before. And some people want to think that's all it is and think that maybe, who knows, uh, the video games or something like that play a role. Almost certainly not. And it's not explained by... Uh, uh, these, are, these are really quite well done culturally independent tests. Flynn's idea, which is why I mention it, and it hasn't been proven, is that what's happened is in the 20th century, the thinking tools, the methods and concepts developed in the sciences and in academic inquiry of all kinds, that would include history and economics and politics and so forth, filtered down into the everyday culture, the culture that you don't even go to school to get, the culture that you just get by being awake and alive in in modern society and that this has a remarkable effect on how well you think Uh, as I say that's not shown but it's an interesting suggestion and very congenial to me of course because I do want to claim that with Dalbom that it's the thinking tools that make us able to think all the wonderful things that we can think of now But there's good and bad tools, and part of my book is about bad thinking tools, tools that blow smoke instead of shedding light. Okay. Oh, well. Is this going to work? Yes. Words are the most obvious thinking tools. Every word in your vocabulary is a tool. It is a focus grabber. It is a gatherer of items that are similar. Uh, It is a reminder it has communicative roles. And without words, the rest of the thinking tools are all but inconceivable. Goethe once said, when ideas fail, words come in very handy. <laughs> when I first heard this, I didn't believe that Goethe actually said it, but he does. He says it in Faust, and it's a, I think it's a wonderful line. It's not just funny. Numbers and diagrams and maps are thinking tools, quite obviously. Notice that these are all quite abstract. Methods of all kinds, whether it's alphabetizing a list. Did you know it's almost impossible to have a telephone book in China? Because there's no way of alphabetizing the names in it. Think of of what a handy tool alphabetization alphabetization is. It's something we learn as young students and take it for granted ever after. But it gives us a nice little very mundane, very modest little thinking tool. And then there's intuition pumps. So what's an intuition pump? Intuition pumps are stories, vignettes, scenarios. They are the lifeblood of philosophy and have been for several millennia. You think of Plato's cave, uh, Socrates teaching geometry to the slave boy. Those are intuition pumps. They're not formal arguments. They're stories that incite ideas, provoke your imagination, and if they work, they stimulate you to suddenly sort of pound your fist on the desk and say, got it, yeah, yeah. I get it. It's got to be thus. That's the intuition. So I'm not talking about intuition in uh, the sense that it's often used in the lay public. You know, uh, uh, did you use reasoning or intuition? Uh, in a way, I, I am. Let me let me say what. I'll tell you a little a little story about. Uh, the early days of artificial intelligence, Hubert Dreyfus, Berkeley professor, wrote a notorious diatribe attacking artificial intelligence called Alchemy and Artificial Intelligence. And one of the things he said in that article was that you could never, ever make a computer that had intuition. And uh, my very first published article was a response to that back in 1968. And in it, I beg to differ with him. And I said, no, in fact, it's child's play to write a computer program that's a good model of intuition. You simply have the computer solve any kind of problem you like, come up with any sort of answer that you want, using any methods that occur to you to be useful. And after it gives you the answer, you ask it, well, how did you get that? And it replies, I don't know, it just came to me. Is what intuition is, is when you have a conviction, you have the faintest idea how you got it. And an intuition pump generates those, but the good thing about having an intuition pump handy is that you can then examine it, take it apart, turn all the knobs, see how it works, and get some insight into what was it that drove you into that intuitive state. It sort of externalizes the processes that gets you to your intuition in the first place. So it's an indirect way of examining your own thought processes. Um, They're persuaders. They're discoverers. They're attention holders. And several readers sent me messages in the last few days in which they said, well, you know, I've read your book now, and it seems to me basically all of your thinking tools are about social thinking, they're about interpersonal acts of persuasion, Uh, they're they're not about, as it were, thinking proper, they're about uh, trying to persuade and convince others. And I said, yes, but that is what all serious thinking is. The social aspect of thinking is built right into it. Even when you're sitting like Rodin's thinker all by yourself, mainly what you're doing is trying to persuade yourself. And that's also a matter of persuasion, of trying to get yourself to see things in one way or another. This is true, I think, even in a field as austere as, say, mathematics. <coughs> When Andrew Wiles proved Fairmont's last theorem a few years ago, nobody was sure he'd proved it. Not even Andrew Wiles was sure he'd proved it until his fellow mathematicians, the competition, the ones who were just as eager to win the prize of proving Fairmont's last theorem as he was, had, had signed off and said somewhat begrudgingly, Well, you've done it, Andrew. Yep, that's a proof. N- nobody, nobody would trust it otherwise. Descartes had a good idea about this aspect of thinking. You have to remember that when, a, when you face a really difficult proof and you've gone over all the steps very carefully, you think you've got a conclusion. What you have to confront then is a disjunction that goes as follows. This is Andrew Wiles talking. Either I have just solved Fairmont's last theorem, just proved Fairmont's last theorem, or I've gone insane. And if the first disjunct is, I have proved Fairmont's last theorem, you better take the second disjunct fairly seriously. Because most of the people in the history of the world who thought they proved it were wrong, that's why we need the social interaction, the the success at consensus building, of uh, uh, of even a field like mathematics before we are can be confident that we've made progress. <coughs> now, in some fields, mathematics, physics, chemistry, the hard sciences, and to a lesser uh, degree, the 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 bio, well the biological sciences and the social sciences there are lots of fixed points that is to say bedrock truths that aren't going anywhere you can pretty well rely on them nobody would, would uh, try to dislodge them it's not true in philosophy I don't think anything aside from perhaps the law of non-contradiction everything else is up for grabs always that's what makes it philosophy so we don't have the same sort of fixed points that other fields have we have tentative fixed points or defeasible or candidates for fixed points. And what we do is we say, well, we've got a fixed point here, fixed point there, fixed point there. Well, they're candidates for fixed points. Let's see what follows from that. And that's the way we make progress in the slippery terrain of philosophy where we don't yet know quite what all the right questions are. (coughs) If I haven't told you about this, I know I speak of this so often, some of you may have heard me talk about what I call the McCready explosion. I name this after Paul McCready, the legendary green engineer who designed, among other things, the gossamer albatross, the human-powered plane that flew across the English Channel some years ago. He points out that 10,000 years ago just a twinkling of time in biological scale. The human population plus livestock and pets was a fraction of 1% by weight of the terrestrial vertebrate biomass, the animals. We were a minor primate. That number is somewhat larger. The percentage is somewhat larger now. Any body like to hazard a guess? How many percent? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Any advances? Do I hear any advances on thirty-five? So. Yes. Well, any anybody think it's more than thirty-five percent? Eighty. Eighty. You're low. It's ninety-eight. Our species has engulfed the planet as no other species ever has. This is one of the most striking biological explosions in the history of life on the planet. Most of that is cattle. And it's happened, as I say, in a twinkling. The genes of our ancestors of 100,000 years ago were almost identical to our genes today. It's not in the genes. The difference that made this possible is in our thinking tools. Here's how McCready puts it. He says, over billions of years on a unique sphere, chance has painted a thin covering of life, complex, improbable, wonderful, and fragile. Suddenly, we humans have grown in population, technology, and intelligence to a position of terrible power. We now wield the paintbrush. That technology and intelligence, that's the thinking tools that give us the power. Well, this immediately raises a chicken and egg problem. Which is it? Did evolve tools make us smarter? Or did we evolve to become smart enough to make tools? And like most good chicken egg problems, the answer is yes. <laughs> it's a bootstrapping thing where a little of both. First we make some simple tools that we don't even understand, but they make us a little bit smarter, maybe smart enough to make a tool we do understand a little bit, and so it goes until we now have reached the point where we can intelligently design tools. And most of the tools I'm going to be discussing today are deliberately designed and created by would-be intelligent designers. But that depends on a lot of tools that don't have that history. So let's look at some simple tools. The beginning of the book, I have a section of a dozen simple general purpose thinking tools, uh, the first of which is familiar to everybody, just reductio ad absurdum. You might call that the crowbar of rational discourse. It's the great lever that we use to dislodge falsehoods from our opponents' views. We take on their premises and you say, ah. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that your premises are true. Look what follows from it. Prank, prank, Generate a contradiction. Say, well, something has to give. Now, we do it all the time. Less formally than that. And it's a very powerful tool. But it's also a, an invitation for abuse of two sorts. I'm going to mention first rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions, those question marks that occur uh, at the end of sentences, and you're not supposed to answer the question. To a first approximation, pretty close, whenever you see a rhetorical question, it is alluding to an unexpressed reductio ad absurdum. Because the point of a rhetorical question is, the answer is so obvious that I don't have to mention what the answer is. Nobody, nobody would, would bother disputing or even expressing the answer. That's, that's the rhetorical force of a rhetorical question. Well, what this means is that very often a rhetorical question marks the most ill-examined part of the argument in question. If you want to find a weak place in your opponent's argument... Look at the rhetorical questions and see if you can't just answer them. One of my favorites was years ago in, a, in a, a Peanuts cartoon strip where Charlie Brown says, who's to say what is right and what is wrong? And Lucy says, I will. And very often you can actually Embarrass your questioner by just trying the answer out, and it works. Uh, Worth thinking about whether that works. Um, Another thing that, another uh, uh, seduction of of reductio is since we're always trying to reduce our opponents' positions to absurdities, there's a temptation to caricature them and to be a bit of a persnickety, bloody-minded, unsympathetic interpreter of their exact words. And that's so easy to do, That, and it's also so fruitless. You always want to make sure that you construct the best possible case before you go trying to make a reductio out of it. Uh, uh, Christian was mentioning that. It was one of the points that I made in that excerpt in The Guardian the other day. Now, I want to tell you about the surely alarm. I give this to my students. I say, every time you see the word surely in print, a little bell should ring ding! And you should pause, you should pause and think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because, as often as not, maybe not quite that much, but maybe a third of the time, by my calculations, where you find a surely, you've found the weakest point in the argument and the point where, where there's apt to be a mistake. And there's a very simple reason why that would be so. The person who writes surely follows it with a sentence which you're supposed to believe, but it's not so obvious that it goes without saying because if it were, it would go without saying. The person has said it. So it's not that obvious. But the person hasn't argued for it. Life is short. So the person has tried to Attract your allegiance by just putting a little nudge in. Surely. And then we pass over it uncritically and go on to the next sentence. So I tested this by going online and pulling out, I think about 75 philosophy papers online and just searching for the word surely until I had several dozen examples. And most of them were innocent, but not by a lot, when I say most, two-thirds of them were innocent. The rest, I thought, were clearly signs, this is the place you want to dig, if you want to find a place to drive a wedge in to this person's argument. Now, let's practice. Are you ready? Want a, little, a little bell should go ding, if you hear shortly. Um, Oh, you could make a computer that could sort fruit, let us say, by color. But surely no computer... I didn't hear anything. You're supposed to go, ding! No, I I mean it really. Thank you. My my students, after I taught them this, they caught me several times in the rest of the semester. I'd say, surely, and they'd go... Ding, <laughs> and we have to stop. So, a co- a computer could sort fruit by color, but but surely it could never prefer one color to another or have an uh, aesthetic appreciation of a color. You get the point. All right. Now, what I've done just now, and it takes a few repetitions, as you can see, is I've installed an app on your necktop. <laughs> Think about it. The Shirley alarm is its sort of like Google Alert or any of the other things that you, that you can have, little app you, you put on your iPhone or your laptop. It's made of information, it's just a little habit that's installed. And you carry it around, it 's in the background, it's, you don 't have to think about it, and every now and then that little bell will ring, and you will just acquire a new cognitive habit, a little boom. and it works. You may get irritated with how often you have false alarms i 'm curious to gather evidence of that uh, if, if you if you uh, discover some good uh, bad cases of the Shirley Alarm, that is where, where, uh, where people are uh, papering over the cracks in their argument. I'd like to hear I'm, I'm going to sort of gather some evidence on that from, from readers. So there's the Shirley Alarm. So there I downloaded an app to your necktop, And of course, my using that word suggests that I think your brain is a computer, and I do. It's not like your laptop or your smartphone, but it is a computer. That's what brains do, they compute. <coughs> They're not pumps like the heart. They're not, they're not um, uh, exchange organs like the lungs. They're computers. They take information in and yield control out. If that isn't a computer, what is it? Um, in fact, I think that computers are thinking tools par excellence. Not just that they help make life easy by letting us model things and keep us honest in various ways, but because the conceptual furnishings of computer science are just wonderful thinking tools in their own right. And I, I think it's very important for philosophers in particular to acquaint themselves with these concepts. They're extremely useful. So there's an interlude in the book on computers. And in particular, what I've learned over the years is that a lot of my students... <laughs> think they understand how computers work, and they just don't, really. They have a very vague understanding of how computers do their magic. So included in that interlude is a chapter which takes you through the world's simplest computer, a register machine, and teaches you how to program it. It teaches you how to program it so it can do arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and then can do other things once it has arithmetic. And it takes you through all, these, all the fundamental concepts of computer programming and of computer architecture in a few short pages. And weirdly enough, for a trade book, there's even problem sets with answers at the back of the book. You don't have to read that chapter. <laughs> but if you want to understand, if you want to add these thinking tools to your kit, you have to read the chapter, unless you already have it. So the register machine is the computer that I installed there. And by the way, I make a prosthetic extension. There's online, and you get this uh, website, you can go to the the website at Tufts University where you can download uh, an app called Rodrigo, which is a register machine where you can check your results and you can see a register machine in action. What a register machine is dead simple. All it can do is either add one to a register or subtract one. You can think of it as putting beans in a cup or taking beans out. That's all it does. And uh, it's very easy to program. Uh, And once you've learned how to do it, it'll take you a few hours. You will then, probably for the first time in your life, unless you're a regular programmer, you will understand what it's like to write code and understand what it's like for computers, how computers get their power. Now here is another thinking tool, Uh, not any words to it, it's just a picture, it's just a juxtaposition of two images. This one, by the way, is due to Matt Ridley, the uh, journalist evolutionary biologist. And uh, on the left, we see an Ashland hand ax. On the right, A mouse, obviously. They're very similar, but they're also profoundly different. Our ancestors made those hand axes without any discernible improvement or change in design for over a million years. It's just astonishing how long that artifact persisted without any change. The mouse, on the other hand, is only a few decades old, and it's probably on the verge of extinction. The pace has picked up in the world of thinking tools. Of course, you might say, well, the Ashland hand-axe isn't a thinking tool. Richard Gregory would beg to differ with you. He'd say, no, any tool actually is a thinking tool that helps you solve problems, all kinds of problems that matter. Well, here's another striking comparison. Some of you may have seen this. This is my favorite uh, comparison slide. On the left, you see an Australian termite castle. On the right, Gaudi's famous La Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona. They're very similar in structure and appearance. Even on the inside, they're very similar in structure and appearance. It's really quite striking. What I want to draw attention to is that however similar they appear, and they are both artifacts made by terrestrial animals, they are profoundly different in design and construction. On the left, we see what we might call Darwinian design and construction, bottom-up, mindless, no comprehension on the part of the constructors. There's no boss, there's no blueprint, there's no architect, there's no king termite that directs the hordes. It's all just local action by quite mindless little termites doing their little bit and unwittingly they create that amazing thing. Gaudi is the other, at the other extreme. He was the the, the, the very caricature of the intelligent designer, the mad genius, the, the charismatic leader, the, the, the boss, the director of the minions. And he had blueprints and manifestos. He had representations of all the reasons why the things should be the way they are. Now that you see the comparison, I can tell you the point of this tool for me, and it is to give you two examples of fixed points for a phenomenon that needs explanation. How do we get in human history, how do we get in biological history from the kind of design and construction you see on the left to the kind we see on the right? Because there's no question that nowadays we have human intelligent designers, we have Gaudis and tourings and Picassos, and Einsteins, and uh, all sorts of other very intelligent, creative, deliberate designers of everything from automobiles to political systems. How'd they get there? What natural, non-miraculous process takes us from one to the other? That's what my next book is going to be about the evolution of culture tools where the first tools were basically like termite tools people didn't really understand their value but they benefited from them and it made them a little bit smarter and gradually get the accumulation of culture and eventually we get to people like Gaudi who did not just have to use his bare brain his brain was furnished with a host of thinking tools, and that's how he could be the creative genius that he was. Here's another example of a thinking tool, which is just a diagram. This is the Tree of Life. This is Leonard Eisenberg. I particularly like this because it lets you see at a glance some important features. So, this uh, is going to work very faintly. Uh, time moves out radially. So this is the present. Every living species today is out here at this edge. Here's where life began, three and a half to four, almost four billion years ago. And what you see is first there were bacteria and archaea. And then came the great eukaryotic revolution, the endosymbiosis, that then creates all of this. Everything Every living thing that's visible to the naked eye, to a first approximation, that's a eukaryote. We're eukaryotes. Fish are eukaryotes. Trees are eukaryotes. So are fungi and worms and the rest. Daisies. So this tremendous fan out of life all goes back to the eukaryotic revolution. Here's the famous Cambrian explosion of 530 million years ago. Steve Gould wrote about so vividly uh, when there was a sudden efflorescence of new designs—a very creative period of evolutionary history—and uh, we can see it's over a rather short period of time. there's a tremendous diversification of life forms. We can see extinctions, mass extinctions along here, and way over here that little that little fork there. That's about uh, six or seven million year or, which is about the length of time that we have lived since we shared a common ancestor with the juni Z. So all of human culture takes place mm-hmm. just out at the very edge of that diagram, and it's had this profound effect on life on the planet. Okay, I'm going to give you A few recent intuition pumps, uh, just to give you an example, because I've hardly talked about them yet. We've been talking about other tools. And this is the nefarious neurosurgeon. First, a little bit of science fact. In Amsterdam, Damien Denise, a good researcher, has developed a little microchip which controls obsessive compulsive disorder. You get it implanted in your brain, and it really does a good job. The early clinical trials have been most heartening. That's fact. But now here comes fiction. And so one day, this fellow goes, he has obsessive-compulsive disorder, he goes to see his friendly neurosurgeon, and she installs the Denise microchip in his brain, and after scanning his brain and sewing him up and letting the anesthetic wear off, she says to him, Yes, yes, You can now go out in the world. Your OCD is under control. And not only that, but our staff here at the clinic will be monitoring you 24-7. And from now on, we'll be controlling all your behavior. You will think you have free will, but actually we'll be making all the decisions for you. Free will for you will be an illusion. Have a nice life. Goodbye. (laughs) And she sends him out into the world, and he believes her. Well, he believes her. Why? Well, because she's got her shiny lab and her fancy gear and her white lab coat and all the rest of that. And believing her, he begins to behave a little bit negligently, doesn't take as much care with his appearance or his behavior, indulges some of his worst features, and pretty soon he gets in trouble with the law. And he's hauled into court, and he says to the judge, but Your Honor, I don't have free will. Ever since I had that chip installed, I I have the illusion of free will, but I don't have free will. And the judge calls the nefarious neurosurgeon to the stand, puts her under oath, says, is this, did you tell this man this? And she says, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I was just messing with his head. I didn't think he'd believe it. Well, now, look what she did. She accomplished verbally what she claimed to accomplish surgically. She disabled him for free will. She disabled him as a moral agent, as a morally competent individual, simply by putting this idea in his head. Now, I think we can all agree, tell me if you don't, that she did the bad thing. Shame on her. That was was beyond mischievous. She really did that fellow some serious harm. Now, having told this little intuition pump, I address my friends in philosophy, science, uh, neuroscience, and, and and psychology, who, as a chorus, recently have been going around saying, "Cognitive neuroscience shows that free will is an illusion," and there's a lot of them that say it. And I ask them, now tell me, why aren't you just doing wholesale what she did retail? Well, don't you feel a little twinge of possible responsibility for doing some harm in in trying to convince people that they don't have free will? And they are typically discomforted by this observation, which is just exactly what I want. Because I've, I've come to the opinion that oh, there's a lot of loose talk really fairly irresponsible talk by neuroscientists who should know better about what neuroscience shows about free will. I submit they're just wrong. Neuroscience has so far almost nothing to tell us about free will in spite of the enthusiasm with which some people uh, declare this. Um, well, you may think, well, show us, Dennett. I mean, you You've said they're wrong, but doesn't it follow from the fact that everybody's decisions flow from just the state of their brain at the time they make the decision, and that state is caused by the state before it, which is caused by the state before it, which is caused by the state before it, and so on. Doesn't that show that we don't have free will? No. It doesn't show that at all. Let me give you another thought experiment that maybe will uh, give you a hint about why that might be so. So I want you to consider two lotteries. In lottery A, the winning ticket is chosen after the tickets are sold. First you sell the tickets, then a winning one is chosen and the winner gets announced. We're familiar with lotteries like that. Here's lottery B, the winning ticket is chosen before the tickets are sold Secretly, and the winning ticket stuff is put in the vault, and then the vault is opened after the tickets are sold. Now, how many of you think that you'd be a fool to buy a ticket in that second lottery because you don't really have a chance? Nobody. The two lotteries are equally fair, equally honest. If you got a chance in one, you got a chance in the other. But now notice, if determinism is true, then all your lottery tickets were chosen before you were born. You can think of them as sort of just chosen at the Big Bang, if you like. They are put in your pocket, and as you go through life, whenever you need a free choice, whenever you need to flip a coin, whenever you need a little bit of chaos to get you off the dime, you open the next lottery ticket, and it's either a winner or a loser. Is that fair? Well, it's determined. Well, so what? You might be wanting to say, well, if you're determined, then you're determined to have good luck on some occasions and bad luck on others. Right. But that's also true if indeterminism is true. Think about it. It doesn't matter whether determinism or indeterminism is true. This chaos in the lives of everybody and whether it's deterministic chaos or indeterministic chaos makes no difference at all. There's no reason to wish for indeterminism because it doesn't have any role to play in giving you more luck or less luck, giving you opportunities you otherwise wouldn't have and so forth. That's what we want. We want to have lots of opportunities and lots of luck. You're destined to win a few and lose a few. Since the chaos is as good as random, it's unpredictable, and everybody takes their chances. And so this intuition pump is designed to alert you to the fact that the obvious fact that free will is incompatible with determinism isn't so obvious after all. It may not really make any difference whether determinism or indeterminism is true. Free will in the sense that matters, in the sense of moral competence, the competence to make decisions that you're prepared to uh, defend and that you can be held responsible for. I take it that's the key to free will. And not everybody has that. Some people are unfortunate in that they don't have that kind of free will. And we don't hold them responsible, and we shouldn't. And we don't even need neuroscience to tell us that. That's been a principle of of the law for hundreds of years. We're refining it as we learn more about what can go wrong in people's brains. But just because when something goes wrong in a person's brain, this tends to be exculpating or diminished responsibility doesn't mean that things can't go right in people's brain. There's a oh, I forgot to put it in. There's a A comic a panel from Dilbert one of my favorite comics and Dilbert is saying um, free will is an illusion we're all just moist robots so relax and let it happen well I think moist (laughs) robots is a great phrase I've adopted it I agree we're all moist robots Does that mean that a moist robot can't have free will? Prove me. Prove it to me. I say no. In fact, even dry robots, if they're designed right, can have free will. But don't jump to the conclusion that if we're a moist robot, then there's no way we could be wired up so we had free will. So that's another little intuition pump with that purpose in mind. There's many more, but I think it's time to... Uh, wrap this up a bit. The philosopher David Wiggins spoke some years ago about the cosmic unfairness of determinism. I can feel that. Can you feel that? The cosmic unfairness of determinism? But now, let's talk about the cosmic unfairness of indeterminism. I, I think they're both equally unfair. So once again, determinism is nothing to dread. It doesn't take away freedom, responsibility, meaning. In fact, whether we have responsibility and meaning and freedom and autonomy is simply neutral to the question of whether or not determinism or indeterminism reigns in our brains. But a lot of people don't see it that way. I'm going to close with this example from my Friend Lee Siegel, a wonderful philosopher of religion, actually, and also a great magician, and a writer of novels, and a wonderful book on Indian street magic, Net of Magic. And there's a passage in it which has become almost a motto for me. I just think it perfectly captures the sort of core of what I've been up to all these years. He says, I'm writing a book on magic, I explain, and I'm asked, real magic? By real magic, people mean miracles, thaumaturgical acts, supernatural powers. No, I answer, conjuring tricks, not real magic. Real magic, in other words, refers to the magic that's not real, while the magic that is real that can actually be done is not real magic. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. A lot of people... Think, if you're talking about consciousness, if it isn't real magic, then you're just changing the subject. They think, this, as it were, by definition, consciousness is real magic. And the same thing about free will. If it isn't a sort of miracle, then you're just not talking about free will. Whereas what I'm saying is, no, they're real, both consciousness and free will. They're wonderful, they're just not that. My book has a lot of little chapters, 77. So you can nibble away. It's sort of a tapas book. Try them out. Take them apart. Turn all the knobs and see how they work. Thanks for your attention.
0: so thank you very much and we now have uh, about uh, 30 minutes for questions uh, yes the over there.
2: in your book do you distinguish between on the one hand truly intuitive tools and on the other reasoning tools I'm thinking along the lines of I'm thinking along the lines of Daniel Kahneman the uh, No, good the thinking fast and slow fast and slow yeah. can, can you divide your tools up into those two categories?
1: Um, I don't think you can, or at least I don't. Uh, um, uh, I'm a big fan of Danny's work, and uh, I think that um, we always have some sort of fast thinking in the foundations of whatever we're doing. Thinking slow, those are thinking tools. And in fact, they are they' very clearly these are these are the methods that have been designed by the scientists. Somebody was asking me the other day if there was some result reportedly in the times i haven 't seen it yet that people actually think slower today on some sorts of problems than they did years ago when this was tested and I thought well that that 's very interesting if it 's true, but I wonder if maybe they think slower because. They've learned it's important to think slower on these items, and they're they're taking their time and making less mistakes. I don't know. But I think that um, Kahneman's distinction is obviously a good one, and it's found many applications. Um, And in particular, he and Tversky uncovered a whole wealth of cognitive foibles, which apparently are sort of part of our animal nature, And so the mere fact that he's identified them shows the sort of recursive power of thinking tools. Once you've identified a weakness, you can create a prosthetic device for overcoming it. Once you've identified myopia, you can put a pair of glasses on. Once you've noticed that you can't think well about probability, you can invent probability theory and... And discipline your thought with some re- regimens that where you have to follow the rules very carefully and deliberately. Otherwise, you go. If you try to do the probability by at your pants, you're going to be taken for a ride. And so uh, I, I like Kahneman's work as a beautiful example of the power of of artifice in improving our thinking.
2: What do I have in my, my... What I have in mind is the 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 actual um, trick that you gave us with regard to the word surely. Uh, that can re- ring a bell. That seems to me, uh, you know, a good idea, and it can be incorporated intuitively if you, um, you know, if you think about it enough. Uh, oh, yeah, and yeah, you don't and have you to practice it enough. No, yeah, it it can be intuitive.
1: Yeah, well, um, uh, human minds are bristling with little microdispositions of that sort. Um, think of the Stroop test, where color words are presented to you in different color ink, and people are terrible at identifying the color of the ink. Why? Because they have this little habit. They can't. They can't block the little app in there that reads the word. Uh, uh, you can prove this by simply putting color words in Greek or something like that up and they have no trouble naming the colors of those, because they don't have that app. Um, and so we do internalize and automat- automatize a lot of these tools. And you might say that when we've automatized them then it's become intuitive. just wait for the microphone I'll let you um, can you hear are uh, intuition pumps memes yes of course (laughs) 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 Um, the concept of memes has had a lot of enemies since Richard Dawkins first proposed it but it's still alive and well and with the little adjustments, it's going to play a lot bigger role in the future. Some very good work that's now being done that will, I think... So, supplementary, are there examples in your view of intuition pumps that have kind of fallen by the wayside? That have, that, that have gone extinct? Well, I certainly have provided examples <laughs> of that I hope go extinct <laughs> because, in fact, I have, a, I have a special name for what I think of as defective intuition pumps in the book and uh, I needed a term for bad intuition pumps and I relied on my sailing experience I once was on a crew of a racing sailboat where we had fun making up phony definitions for nautical terms and one of them was a boom crutch which is of course a wooden stick a forked stick that holds the boom from falling on the deck when you take the sail down that's a boom crutch But in our lexicon, a boom crutch was an explosive orthopedic device. And ever since that day many years ago when somebody invented that definition, I can't think of a boom crutch or hear the word boom crutch without having this image of some poor fellow blowing his armpit off, you know, ouch. And so it was the perfect term for uh, intuition pumps that I would like to extinguish. And so there were a bunch of, of... of intuition pumps that I uh, uh, take apart, dismantle, expose, and now deplore and hope that others will join in deploring them along with me. There's lots of them.
0: So in the uh, third row from the top, the gentleman.
2: Yes, I'd just like to clarify something around the nefarious neurosurgeon Um, because I wasn't sure where it was going, you ended up saying that you thought the neurosurgeon did something wrong. But what what I'm wondering is, and by extension, therefore, uh, neuroscientists who are claiming that our brains are kind of doing everything before we know about it are therefore wrong. What has the moral issue got to do with the fact that maybe there is something about uh, unconsciousness determining how we actually think? There's two separate things there,
1: right? Oh, they are. Oh, yes. But what... What she's doing wrong is she's making a large factual claim claiming that it's supported by science which happens to have very important moral implications and she's not doing her due diligence. She's not checking that fact out. If it's true then that will be terrible in a way. Let's find out. But what what I object to is the fact that they are ignoring the, even the prospect that they've made a big mistake and they're, they're issuing, and they're not just saying it, they're also saying, and therefore we should dismantle our system of law and order and punishment and we should simply throw these out, science has shown these no longer have a role to play. I think that is, it's one of the things I actually like about it is that I've spent so much of my career telling my philosophical colleagues that they really should pay more attention to some of this science. And now I'm telling my scientific colleagues you really should pay more attention to some of this philosophy. You're, be, you're doing bad philosophy uh, and uh, and it's time for you to go back to school and learn some of this because you're making a mistake which is... Uh, really, a critical error which which you you should you should regret. It's this is not a casual. Uh, I, I think every I think I appreciate and excuse and actually sometimes applaud the way scientists will get a full head of steam up about whatever their particular theory is and do glorious battle with the opposition. That's that's the way science proceeds. It's a, lot of, a lot of cut and thrust and a lot of competition, a lot of big egos and all the rest of that. But when the topic you're dealing with has social implications, you've got to be careful. And whether that's about what causes AIDS or uh, uh, whether there are genetic differences in intelligence that show up along ethnic lines there are 100 topics where we've learned you don't open your mouth on these topics unless you're dead sure. And that's what they're not doing. They're not recognizing that this is one of those issues and that they better be darn sure they're right before they start insisting that this is what their science has shown. Uh,
0: just two rows, if you don't.
2: Peter. Peter. Um. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the surely uh, intuition pump. Can I suggest a close relative, which is the clearly um, intuition pump? This is particularly used in mathematics, where people say clearly, uh, and then it's something actually um, you, uh, often is not particularly clear. And, and I think it has the effect of making you slightly switch off and sort of think you must be stupid if you can't see this, so you don't look at it too critically. No. Now, usually, usually when mathematicians say it is correct, but very often it's not particularly clear. I once had a co-author who put a paper and I questioned it, and we actually showed it was after half a page of algebra probably what it was true but it was certainly not to me not to me clear and I think it would be a good thing if mathematicians and philosophers didn't use the
1: word clearly dot 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 Yeah, you know I, I remember a, I'm trying to remember which mathematician it was when I was an undergraduate at Harvard was famous for having um, uh, said well it's obvious that blah 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 and somebody in the audience said, I'm sorry I, I, I don't see that that's obvious could you please Expand a bit. He said, sure. And he proceeded to cover three blackboards <laughs> with proof. He finished and said, you see, it's obvious.
0: <laughs> so we'll go uh, just uh, in the front row here. Uh,
1: just one question. Um, why do you call these intuition pumps pumps? why
2: this particular type of tool, what do you... What okay, of, why don't I just call them thought
1: experiments, for instance, yeah. which is what they are. And it's because I wanted to stress and encourage the frame of mind, the perspective of the reverse engineer. I want you to think of these as gadgets. They're artifacts, they're made by clever artificers. And I want you to get in the habit of treating them the way you would treat... What's this strange gadget that I've found on the floor here? How does it work? Move all the parts, turn all the knobs, twist all the levers, see what it's good for. And so that's why I like the term. In fact, what happened historically is I invented the term to criticize an intuition pump, and that was the John Searle's Chinese room. And at... A few months later Doug Hofstadter and I were working on the book The Mind's Eye where we were going to include the Searle and criticism of Searle in our book and he loved the term intuition pump and he was the one who came up with the image of turning all the knobs to see how it works which I think is exactly right and you'll see in the book there are some examples where I set up uh, an intuition pump which has done a lot of, of persuading and then I identify, say, four knobs, I say, well, we'll turn each one and see what the effect is. And by the time you're through turning the knobs, the effect is vanished, uh, which is an important lesson to learn.
0: Yeah gentleman in the third, fourth row?
1: Um,
0: in your view, where does the boundary lie between the bare brain and a thinking tool? So if a word, for example is a thinking tool. Is the ability to map an arbitrary symbol to an object in the world. Is that also a tool or is it the bare brain? Is the ability to recognize an object as separate from the rest of the world. Is that also a tool or is it the bare brain? What do you think is tool well,
1: well, I, w- uh, I want to use, uh, use thinking tool to refer to things that you're not born with and you acquire from the culture one way or another. So uh, uh, counting in words are the sort of simplest cases of that. Um, uh, Habits of thought that don't just come from being alive in a world with a gravity and light (laughs) and sound, uh, those are the thinking tools. And it's interesting that if you keep that definition in mind, hard-pressed to find any animal that has any thinking tools. Yes, there's the chimpanzees uh, learn to crack nuts. Uh, But that seems to be the end of it. There's no further, uh, there's no population explosion of thinking tools in any other species.
0: And the lady in the fifth row.
2: Hello, Mr. Dennett. Thanks for the lecture. It was really interesting. I want to go back to the beginning of your lecture. You were saying that we're definitely smarter now, and it's a fact, so we've got um, a lot of tools that we can use to make this world more interesting and more complex. What I'm thinking is what happened to art and culture in general we haven't had any massive artistic breakthroughs in a while. You go to a contemporary exhibition and you think, what the hell is going on? It's all rubbish. And we all refer to the better examples from the past uh, about great artists or great musicians. Why isn't it happening now? What, what's, what's the problem? It's certainly going downhill, not uphill. <laughs>
1: well, well, my, my personal
2: honest
3: opinion... Why is it happening? There,
1: there's a there's a Latin thinking tool that probably everybody knows here, De Gustibus, uh, but I'm not going to bother uh, uh, articulating it. Um, here's one thing I think is true. Um, the great mathematician Stanislaus Ulam once pointed out that he liked. What he liked about poetry, rhyming poetry, is that by taking on the constraint of having to find rhymes, it forced people to do a much more exhaustive search of their imaginations. It was, it was both harder and easier to write poetry if you, if you had constraint. And of course the same thing is, sort of true, is true in music, for instance if you want to write a classical symphony or if you want to write a a, a Scott Joplin rag or something like that, there's rules. Rules are tools. And they actually make musical composition, artistic composition easier. And we've had about a century now where the meme of throw away all the rules, uh, transcend all the rules, has... Uh, had a good press it 's rained not absolute but but uh, it's, a lot of people have have taken that to heart with the result that it 's very hard for them to do anything that holds anybody 's attention very well because uh, it 's too hard to tell when they 've actually succeeded in doing what they 're trying to do for one thing uh, the the net on the basketball court plays a very important role, unless you know when the ball went in the basket. If you've ever played basketball on a court where, the, where there's no net, you know that it's very hard to tell an air ball from a, from a basket. Uh, it's a little thinking tool, a little perceptual tool. Well, if you, the same thing is true in the arts. If there's, if there's no net to tell you whether or not you've succeeded, then... Uh, it's hardly worth playing.
0: Uh, Gentleman just uh, down here.
3: Mm Hi. um, I used to work in the media and I started a new job with a producer and the first thing he asked me was uh, what did you study? And I said I studied science, zoology and he said oh you've been brain damaged um, and essentially, his, his logic was that we're a, we're a species that develops through storytelling and science damages your brain by preventing you from learning how to tell stories. I was wondering what you thought about that.
1: Hmm. I, I'm amused by the story. <laughs> um, and, but I think, uh, first of all, um, the fellow didn't notice that a lot of very good science is basically historical and includes narratives and and evolutionary biology but also geology uh, uh, and cosmology Uh, so I think he just doesn't know enough science to know that there are narratives there and that they play a very important role um uh but that's a common uh, defensive uh, fantasy of people who don't know any science. Yeah.
2: Hi. Do um do thinking tools all share the same functional role? And how do we decide
1: when one thinking tool is better than another? The same way we decide how a carpentry tool is good or bad. What what can you do with it? And does it make a mess? Does it break things or does it fix things? Um, I think that's the answer. Um, I don't think there are any rules about it. You have to. One of the nice things about tools is that. They they live or die by their by their functions. Um, uh, a uh, gold plated hammer with a mother of pearl handle is not particularly desirable. Uh, maybe you want want to make it to give as a gift, but you know, I like the pragmatism of good tools. They work.
0: The gentleman in the middle. Oh, thank you.
3: Um, my question is: We seem to be at the stage to move beyond creating merely thinking tools. We're actually making tools that not only help us think, but actually make a decision for us. Uh, like people like Donna Arkin, the, you know, the guy who come up with like the ethical robot killer robot. He's quite keen on that idea, and he reckons like, the robot he makes can be. Probably behave more ethically than a human soldier could ever be, and I reckon. So like, I read your article in 2011, and you said you're pretty concerned, as you already showed. But do you reckon this is the path that we are actually going down? And so is there any other alternative, or we should resign to the fact that this is a evolutionary path and we need to walk on, creating decision-making yeah. machines instead of making decisions?
1: You raise a very uh, important topic which I've discussed in the past but I don't discuss in this book but let me allude to that in a paper some years ago called um, Information Technology and the Virtues of Ignorance I talked about how as we develop tools that take on this decision making role we um, we enter a whole new territory um, Let's just look at medicine for a moment. I think looking at ethical robots and warfare is actually uh, distracting. Uh, Let's look at at medicine for a moment. We're about at the point where doctors, because of their ethical uh, commitment are going to start ceding authority to their machines because they will have had demonstrated to them that their machines are better at the diagnosis than they are. And they are going to realize that the grand swashbuckling diagnostic heroes of recent medical past are probably going obsolete because the technology demonstrably can have a much better success rate. Notice that this isn't just a, this isn't a blessing in some regards. It's going to mean that the whole role of being a doctor, um, uh, being in medicine, is going to be diminished. You're going to be reduced to a button pusher with a good bedside manner, and that is once. Mind workers like this are as much in danger of being replaced by machines as as factory workers. Um, big changes, uh, big social changes are uh, in the offing. I just received yesterday uh, uh, a tweet about a paper of Norbert Wieners that has lain unpublished for more than 50 years and in fact since 1949 where he anticipated a lot of this he's the man who wrote the book Cybernetics uh, a hero of mine also by the way the most distinguished alumnus of Tufts University and uh, he wrote way back in 1949 that this, these social trends were going, to, were going to happen and we better be ready for them
0: a gentleman with a blue jumper.
4: thank you actually I'd like to ask you two questions if I, if I may um, first I uh, I'd like to uh, think of tools as um, uh, things that are designed for a particular uh, purpose with an unambiguous function and mm-hmm. I was wondering if Uh, thinking tools and especially intuition pumps are the same
1: yes Uh, in fact some of them have very limited functions a lot of the intuition pumps in the book are designed to either refute or support a very specific hypothesis in the philosophy of meaning or the philosophy of mind or or on free will or something like that and they have no application outside of that that I can think of I've included some, but mainly I've tried to make, make sure that the thinking tools in the book have a, have a wider uh, sort of domain of interest than just for philosophers. One of my personal favorite thinking tools, The Ballad of Shaky's Pizza Parler, which I think is fun and makes a devastating point, I left out because I realized after test flying it with my students, that in order for them to see the point of it, I first had to infect them with a lot of bad philosophy (laughs) so that I could then cure them with this tool. (laughs) I thought, ah, not for the general reader. (laughs) You had a second Uh,
4: question. Yes, and um, when you uh, explained uh, the the simply... uh, um, Sorry, what is the surely alarm um, you mentioned uh, dun- downloading an app on, on uh, Onto your neck top, app on, yes, on your necktop and um, it, uh, it tilted uh, in my brain and I was uh, wondering um, how uh, this uh, intuition pumps and thinking tools uh, concepts are related to uh, a commitment to uh, uh, modularity uh, visions of our minds Oh, modularity absent features. Absent yeah. modules are well,
1: for the same. Um, the term module has had uh, several different and competing uses in cognitive science. Fodor, Jerry Fodor had his famous book, The Modularity of Mind, and he had a very tight definition of module. And I think the general consensus today is that Fodorian modules, are that's not a good concept. Particularly, there are some maybe but they don't play the role that he claimed for them. But modularity, defined rather differently, is still a useful term in cognitive science. And in a way, uh, I would suggest that we want to think, for instance, about every particular word in your vocabulary is a module there semi-autonomous informational structures that have a variety of roles to play. That's my colleague Ray Jackendoff's definition of a word. And uh, it's amazing how how portable they are and how they can move from language to language. Many of the words in English move to English from other languages where they have to make minor adjustments and then they play excellent roles. Um, And techniques like alphabetization or finding the average or when you're bothered by a problem in probability, switch to a frequentist interpretation and solve it in a trice by just counting. There are lots of little tricks like that. I think those are modules in a way. And you have to you have to have them fairly self-contained and you have to have them so that they're like the birds in the Theaetetus. Plato has this wonderful image of knowledge in the Theaetetus. He says, it's, your knowledge is like, they're like birds in a giant aviary. You have this huge aviary, have all these birds. They're your birds. He says, the trick is to get them to come when you call. And you've got a lot of good modules in your head. The trick is to get them to come when you need them. I wanna, I'm going to give you a little example. Now, nobody say a word. I'm going to ask you a question. If you, it's a yes-no question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. Is there a common four-letter word in English that ends with the letters, in this order, E-N-Y? Think about it. Okay, a lot of you, I guess, haven't got it yet. You you, you haven't got it. All right, well, I just want to ask you a few questions about this. So, are you inclined to deny there is such a word? Are you inclined to deny there is such a word? You're not inclined to deny that word? Why not? All right, so you don't know the answer. You can't think of the answer. But you're not yet prepared to deny there is such a word. (laughs) All right. You're not prepared to deny that there is such a word. Now, what happened there? He knows as well as everybody in the room that D-E-N-Y is a common English word ending in E-N-Y, but he couldn't get that bird to come when he called. Uh, And I dare say that I can read your mind because what you did when you got the problem is you went heeny, beeny, seeny, deeny, feeny, geeny, heeny right? Yeah. And you went right by it. Yeah. Huh? yeah. yeah. Okay, so you see we have these little thinking tools and they don't always work for us. Uh, by the way, that example um, is from Larry Power's wonderful paper Knowledge by Deduction some years ago. I've often used it. Nice little thinking tool of its own.
0: So I think on this uh, note, uh, we are unfortunately out of time. Um, So before we officially thank uh, Dan, um, I just want to again mention that there will be an opportunity to get signed copies of the book outside. Um, And uh, please follow uh, LSE philosophy events on the web, the Forum for European Philosophy, CPNSS, and the philosophy department have lots of things going on. So we hope to welcome you back at the LSE. And on this note... Thank you very much, Daniel Dennett, for a great lecture.